Hey, well, welcome to uh, Simplicity Sunday. It's hard to clap with a paper in your hand, isn't it? That's not what he said when life gives you lemons. What do you do? You make lemonade, right? So we're going to make this uh, Simplicity Sunday. Our uh, projection system went out too late for us to fix it this week. But um, I, I have to confess that simplicity is really one of my most cherished spiritual disciplines. I, I just find that I, I connect with Jesus more in a simple environment than in a complex one. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I think it's just uh, kind of a great test of our faith, isn't it? Even to come together so used to having things plastered up on the wall and color for us that uh, we can just come and just simply fix our eyes on Jesus. I like it. I like it, and uh, I think we should thank God for it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing us together as believers who love you, as uh, people who are trying to sort this out, Lord. We want to know what this Bible means for us today. We want to connect with you as the Father who loves us so much that you made a way for us to be saved. We want to experience you in the present dynamic of your Holy Spirit and the outbreaking of your kingdom here on earth. It's our heart to be here, Lord, uh, not because we're religious at all, but because we're not, and uh, that we just want to be wherever you are. And so I thank you for every person here, Lord. I thank you for the person who maybe has heard me teach a thousand times in 20 years. It's, a, it's an amazing thought to think that that would even be a possibility that there are people here who have heard me teach a thousand times. And I cherish them, Lord. And I also cherish the one who is here today, and maybe this is the only time in all of their history or mine that we'll have this kind of a conversation and I cherish them too Lord and everybody in between so I I just don't take this lightly Lord I invite your Holy Spirit to come and uh, you know whether the projectors working or not Lord we we know that you're working and that uh, you want to be with us and so we invite you to come and meet us in the word in Jesus name amen amen well, uh, last week, I, I think we touched a nerve in some of you uh, as I was teaching on the subject of praising God. And uh, it was interesting, uh, particularly in some of you who seem to struggle somewhat with, you know, a frequent and free release of praise to God. I get that. I get that, that some of you, are, you come in here with a short fuse and it's lit and off you go in praise to the Lord. And others have, uh, you know, kind of a something to get through or uh, some barriers that maybe stand in the way of that and uh, felt like we maybe touched a nerve and some of you feel a little locked up maybe in this regard of how do you how do you praise God and in feeling locked up maybe you feel a little left out sometimes you know you look around and these crazy people are going you know expressing themselves in praise to God and you're going I, I don't I don't know I don't feel like Maybe I don't feel like I belong or something like that, none of which is true. It's a very understandable feeling, though, to, to be, uh, how, how come I can't get there? And so 
Uh, we seemed to touch a nerve last week as I was teaching on the subject of praising God when I referred to your, your praise as your present sacrifice to God. That this is what it means. This is how you bring a sacrifice to the Lord is when you praise God. And praising God is a, seems like a greater sacrifice when you don't feel like it, right? And when you kind of have to overcome that stuff and go, I need to push through and praise God because in spite of any circumstances I may be facing, God is still God and he's still worthy of my praise. And none of that has ever changed. And there's nothing that man can do to me that would change the supremacy of God. And so there are days for all of us when we just have to push through and, and so that the praise becomes an even greater sacrifice than for the short fusers here, right? Sure. And we got to that sacrifice by my very light reference to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, where it says there, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Now, that's a verse all by itself. And we, we know we need to be really careful about taking verses all by themselves, don't we? Because we can take them out of what? Context. They can be taught, Lord. Thank you. We can take them out of context. Very dangerous thing to do. And uh, in, in the somewhat larger context, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, oh, your Bibles, yeah. Do you find it the slightest bit coincidental that last week when I was fussing about how I fear that because we put so much stuff up on the screen that people aren't bringing their Bibles to church anymore? Well, guess how much Bible there's going to be up on the wall behind me today? I'll tell you what. Here we go, okay? If you have a Bible, you'll find in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10, the slightly larger context, where the Bible says, We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. We'll get to that. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That's the slightly larger context. And we've learned by now that context is one of the fundamental dynamics of interpreting the Bible well. And context simply means the larger, the larger setting, the larger picture around which a particular passage, we call it, or group of words in the Bible, is set. And it makes an enormous difference in whether we properly interpret the Bible or try to make it 
say what we wanted to say by establishing and, and respecting the context. And I think this has really become an enormous problem in the American church today because there are so many different kinds of churches that seem to be kind of centered around very small passages of Scripture that seem to make the point that they want to make. And it has brought division to the church rather than unity. And the Bible should bring unity to the church. And in my own lifetime, I can trace this problem back to the 70s or 80s with the, with the explosion of the church growth movement. And by the way, I'm educated in church growth principles beyond my intelligence and, um, and observe practically none of them. And the whole church growth movement came with a very marketing concept of how to, how to better reach America with the gospel. And the marketing concept that lived at the center of the church growth movement was this, this phrase, find a need and fill it. Find a need and fill it. On the surface, it sounds so good, doesn't it? But what happened is churches were led to abandon the Bible as the basic presentation, as the central presentation to a gathering, and instead, they wanted to find a need. Let's find a need in society that we can meet, and let's draw people into the thing we're calling the church by meeting that need. Now, when you do that, this thing happens. The thing that happens is people come not to give their life, but for you to give them their life. They come into the church for the wrong reasons. They come because of the promise that if you come to church, we will meet that need. We are giving ourselves to meeting that needs. Now, am I saying the church shouldn't meet needs? Of course not. But here's how the church should meet needs. When people of God are drawn by his spirit to come and lay down their lives for the gospel, then every need will be met from that place rather than for it. And when we draw people in with a promise that we will make you happy, we will fix that problem, then what happens is you gather in huge numbers people who are consumers, people who come, rightfully so, according to this promise that has been made to them. Now what happens next is simply this. The church growth movement said, just get them in the room, and then once you have them in the room, you can kind of do a bait-and-switch thing and start telling them about the Bible. Here's the problem with that. You have to go real slow, or people will catch on. You've got to go real slow. And so in order to do that, you have to kind of lift up certain Bible passages that can be said in a certain way that sounds, as Paul said, you know, what their itching ears want to hear. And you have to violate context in order to do that. Are you hearing me? So the problem that exists in the American church and so many expressions of it today is in order to keep seats in the seats and in order to keep the offerings full, we have to keep doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this. Well, I say agwash. I say the Bible says what the Bible says. I want to tell you what the Bible says. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes it'll make you feel good. Sometimes it'll bring it to your face. Welcome to the Bible. Welcome to a dynamic relationship with God through the power of His Holy Spirit. Welcome to that. There's no fine print here. You're coming here to give your life, right? 
There's no fine print. If you give your life to Jesus, he will have one agenda for the rest of your life, and that's to kill you. To kill the rest of your humanity so that the spirit man can live inside of you. This is the truth of the gospel. Context. Context. It means everything. When you want to properly interpret the words of the Bible as a student of the Bible, as one who reads their Bible and says, what does that mean? You've got to start with the context. There are a lot of different factors that figure into the context of a given passage, but I think if you observe two, you'll be off to a great start. And the first piece of context is simply this. What is this book or this section of the Bible? You know, we call them books even though they're very short, like the book of Ephesians or the book of 2 Thessalonians. What is this book about? What is the bigger message in this whole book? Before we go grabbing a couple of verses out of the book, we want to just ask the question, well, what's this thing about, right? Because the same words under a different umbrella of what it's about can have different meanings, yes or no? Yes. Say yes louder. I'll begin the whole... I swear I'll keep you till 4 o'clock here this afternoon if you guys... Same thing. What is the bigger thing about? And the other, the other thing is simply this. Is to whom was it written? To whom was it originally written 2,000 years ago in New Testament cases? Who were the recipients? This is going to make a difference in establishing the context. And while there are more factors that you can figure in to establishing a full context... If you're honest about these two things, what it's about, to whom was it written, you've laid a very good foundation for properly interpreting what you're reading. Now, just as an example, let's just create a hypothetical situation with two books of the Bible. Uh, One book being Galatians, the other book being Philippians. These are two different New Testament books, we call them, that are pretty close to each other in the Bible. Uh, They were epistles, meaning they were letters, written by the same person, the Apostle Paul, but they're about different things, and they were written to different people. I want to demonstrate something to you about context. Galatians, for example, was written to a group of people, who believers who lived in the city of Galatia. So that's Galatians, that's how it got its name. So these were first century Christians who lived in in Galatia. They were probably a mix of both Jews and Gentiles who had come to Christ. They had come to the Lord Jesus Christ. By now he's died on the cross, risen from the dead. The gospel's going out. People are coming to Christ in big numbers. And they, in Galatia, they're having a party. They are enjoying their liberty. They're enjoying their liberty in the gospel. I mean, can you imagine Jews who had been under the law for so long, and now the gospel comes and says, Jesus did all that for you. Can you imagine Gentiles who had no hope of a relationship with God? Now said, come on! Can you imagine the party in the city of Galatia, yes or no? Okay, infused in that mix, then, were these people called the Judaizers. And they would come, and they were kind of like the Pharisees. They would come and they would say, you guys, you shouldn't be this happy. You can't be this happy. In fact, if you're not circumcised, and if you don't obey all the Old Testament law, you can't even call yourself a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you need to, you need to sober up here. Yeah. You need to lose your joy. 
And you need to get back to doing the stuff that we had to do all of our lives and we're still doing. Now to them, Paul came in and here was his message. No way. He says, do not let anybody steal your joy from you. You are free in Christ. He said, it's for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. Do not let anyone cut in on you and steal what Jesus has given you. So this is, this is the context of the words of, of the book of Galatians. So everything you read in Galatians has to be read through those lenses. Does that make sense, yes or no? Yes. Now let's go to Philippians. Book of Philippians, written by the same guy, to a group of Christians in Philippi, another city in Asia Minor. Now, Paul is writing this from prison. He's been arrested for his faith. But while he's in prison, the Philippians, who were an impoverished people, they, they, lived, they were poor, they were continuing out of their poverty to support his ministry. And how does he write to them in the beginning? He says, don't be upset that I'm in jail. It's because I'm in jail, all these guards have come to Christ. So this is great, isn't it? And so he's writing to them. And the people of Philippi, I think you could say, were Paul's cherished, I, I don't know if I want to say favorite, but they were. They were his favorite church. They were his favorite church. He loved them. Of all the churches that, that Paul planted throughout Asia Minor, the Philippians were his favorite. So it's from this heart that he's writing to them. And the book of Philippians is largely, in context, a thank you note for this support that they had given to him out of, out of their poverty. Now, you have those two pieces of context, right? Let's take some words from Philippians and see if we can understand them. Let's take one of our favorites, Philippians 4.19. For my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. How many of you have ever heard that before? Some of you maybe have it on your fridge. Maybe it's a memory verse. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's a cool verse. In context, written to an impoverished people who were in their poverty supporting his ministry so the gospel could be advanced, he said to them, and my God, you guys, my God, you're giving out of your poverty. Don't worry, because my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, do you see the meaning of it? You see, the only thing it could mean is like, hang in there, guys. God will meet your needs. God will meet your needs. Let's just hypothetically take those same words and move them over to Galatians. Let's just say they were in Galatians. And my God shall meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's not a thank you note. It's, a, it, it, it's an exhortation not to let your joy be stolen because Jesus Christ has satisfied every jot and tittle of the law for you. Now, had he said those there, Galatians, my God, We'll meet all of your needs, according to, including your need to be made perfectly right, atoned for by the blood of Christ, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You see how they would have meant something entirely different? Yes or no? Same words, two different contexts, two different meanings. So it's critically important, I think, to stop and ask, what is this context? But in either case... Whether you put those words, my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, 
whether you put them in Philippian context or Galatian context or any biblical context, you cannot make them what they have been prostituted to mean by these prosperity preachers who are saying that God, you can get anything from God anytime you want it. You can't do that. that. You can't do it and respect any biblical context. Here's how the prosperity preachers do it. They lift those verses. My God will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Lift the words out and they set it in our context. And they interpret the Bible backwards instead of forwards. And they say, you can get anything you want from God. See, it says it right here. Don't you want a husband? Don't you want a Mercedes? Don't you want a new house? You can get anything you want from God. But you see, it's a violation of the context. Does that make sense, yes or no? All right, so we've got to get hold of a context of a passage if we're going to understand the words. All right, now back to Hebrews, okay? All right. What's the context of Hebrews? This is where we are today. Hebrews chapter 13. What is Hebrews about? As a book, it's about a couple of things. It's about the nature of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And it's about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a full and perfect payment for all of our sins. As you keep reading, you see that repeated over and over and over again. The nature of Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus? And then also the, the, uh, the, the payment, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a perfect, perfect payment for our sins. That's, part of, that's what it's about. So before we can begin interpreting specific words, we've always got to keep that in mind. Whatever the words are, they're always about that. The other part of context, to whom was it written? Well, unfortunately, Hebrews is less generous than some of many of the other New Testament books. Philippians, Colossians, for example, start to the saints at Philippi. Hebrews just is off and running. But it's likely written to a group of Jewish believers who were trying to figure out something. They were trying to figure out how to progress from a lifetime of temple worship and temple sacrifice into the liberties of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came as a fulfillment of the law. So they grew up, called, it's called Hebrews, I think we can guess it was written to Jewish people, uh, so they grew up observing everything about the law, and now the gospel comes and says, Jesus has covered that all for you, and they're like, okay, that sounds great, but what do we do now? What do we do now? How do we make our, for years, we have made our Passover sacrifices for years. We have made our sin offerings for years. We have done this. And you're saying Jesus has covered this. He was the Paschal Lamb. He was the Passover Lamb. What do we do now, they say? What do we do? And he says, here's what you do. You bring him a sacrifice of praise. You, bring, you want what your sacrifice is? You bring him a sacrifice of praise. They're asking, what do we do now? Pertaining to the nature of Jesus Christ, um, Hebrews tells us one thing repeatedly, and that is that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ was, is, always will be God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Son, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. Now, if, if God had a substance, it would be glory. If God was made of something, he'd be made of glory. So when we read about the glory of God throughout the Bible, we're seeing, about, we're seeing the expression of, of God's substance. And here it says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. That he actually is the expression of God in the world. And it says he's the exact representation of his being. Now this tells us that Jesus is God. Jesus was not a super prophet. As some of the religions of the world say, oh yeah, we know about Jesus. He was an amazing prophet. Jesus was not a super teacher. Oh, what a guru Jesus was, some religions will say. They call it a bhakti yoga in Hinduism, meaning a yoga of love. Oh, what a great teacher he was. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not just a teacher. Jesus was the Son of God, the exact representation of the being of God on earth. And Hebrews tells us this over and over again. It tells us also that as the Son of God, Jesus was the perfect and eternal high priest. He was the perfect and forever high priest. So I think you may know that it was the practice of the Jews to have priests who served God to them. That out of the tribe of Levi or the line of Aaron, that there were, there were priests. There were men who were ordained to serve as priests. And they stood between the people and God. That there was no personal experience for you, Barb. You had to come to a priest. You had to live vicariously through that priest. I pity you if you would have to live vicariously through me. I do. I do. I appreciate that you love me. I appreciate that you hear my teaching. But my teaching is not for you to live through. My teaching is to give to you so that you can have your own relationship with the living God, with Jesus Christ as the one and only mediator between you. You don't need another man. You don't need another woman. You don't need another person. You need Jesus. And to the extent that there are people in the body of Christ who can equip you to know Jesus, praise God for them, yes? But to the extent that they stand there and say, I will tell you how to, live, how, to, how to enjoy God through me, reject them, run for cover. That's called heresy. You don't need them. You don't need me. You need Jesus. If you benefit from the ministry, praise God, but praise Him only. So Jesus was the perfect and eternal high priest, according to Hebrews. So among all of the priests, one would be selected to serve for a year as the high priest. And they would have very specific duties. And they would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, once a year. And they would do certain things to bring atonement for the sins of all the people. The high priest would do that. So just get this, everything funnels in terms of forgiveness, everything funnels in the nation of Israel to the high priest. So the high priest goes in and very carefully attends to certain realities, certain measures in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, that only he could do. And they hoped he came out alive. 
So everything went in. The Bible says that Jesus is our high priest. We don't need one anymore. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Jesus, everything comes to him for the forgiveness of sins. Everything comes to him. There is no other. There's no other mediator, the Bible says, between man and God but the man Jesus Christ. And it says that Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That sounds confusing. Melchizedek is a fascinating, fascinating story in Genesis chapter 14. When a priest came to Abraham, and, and, and he came and he brought bread and wine to Abraham. And he came from this city called Salem, which was the precursor of Jerusalem. You getting this? And so before the law, before Moses, before anything, before any of that even existed, a priest named Melchizedek came from Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, and offered Abraham what? Bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ. Offered it to him. Offered it to him. And now Hebrews says, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the fulfillment of Melchizedek promised. And he brings... The peace of God to you. It's also referred to in Psalm 110 that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this is the nature of who Jesus is. Now the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews, was full and perfect payment for your sins. That it was understood by the people of Israel that the demanded sacrifices were making provision for their sins. No one was arguing with the fact that they had sin. What they were saying was, we understand that these offerings that we must bring annually, we must bring them to the temple to be made for the provision of our sins. Now the book of Hebrews says, Jesus clearly comes along and he says, I've got that. I've got that for you, Charlie. I've got it. I'll cover that for you. Jesus is saying, you have faith in me, Jesus, not me. Jesus is saying, you have faith in me. I will cover that for you. I will cover every required sacrifice by my blood. And Hebrews says, what blood could we possibly offer to God that would be more valuable to him than the blood of his own dear son that paid for our sins? And that Jesus is the full, the full payment of our sins. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't you wish you had your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. That's what he said. He said the law, the Old Testament law, just a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. You can follow the law all day long and you won't experience God. Because since Jesus has come, the law has been fulfilled. You can now experience God through his payment for your sins. For this reason, it can, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Can't work. Jesus has come. That doesn't work anymore. That's done. That's done. It's of no use. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all. If it worked, it doesn't work anymore. And would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Remember, remember the people he's speaking to. These are, these are Jewish believers who are harking back, should I be making those, shouldn't I be making those sacrifices? Come on. This is context. Shouldn't I still be doing that? 
And he's saying, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins because the blood of Jesus has taken away our sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said to him, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings. Uh, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. Now look, look at this. He sets aside the first to establish the second. So the first covenant and the Old Testament and all the rules and regulations are fulfilled in Christ and thus set aside. He sets them aside so that he can bring in the second, to establish the second. And by that will... We have been made holy, how? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you once for all. It's done. Past, present, future sins covered by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ is no longer on the cross. You will not come into this church and see a crucifix. You will not come in this church and see the body of Jesus on the cross because he was only there for a short time. He was laid in a tomb. He rose from the dead. And I already read to you that he ascended to the Father. He's not on the cross anymore. It's done. It's all done. It's all done. And this is the context. This is the context. What about the sacrifices then? What about the sacrifices? They're saying, what should we do? How... How do we respond to a God who loved me so much that he paid my whole debt? How do I, what do I, isn't there something I can do? I mean, isn't that where our contexts connect, ours and theirs? It's like you're so grateful that you've been forgiven by the merits of Christ. But aren't you saying, come on, isn't there something I can do? Isn't there some sacrifice I can render? Okay, with that whole context, now in a moment, you can grasp the meaning of this passage. Let's go back to Hebrews 13. Verse 10. Now you can read it through the lens of context. I read it once for you without establishing it. Now look what happens. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Do you see the dichotomy that's being set up? We have an altar, a meeting place with God. That those who minister at the tabernacle slash temple, all, you know, sin offerings, sacrifice of lambs and goats, they don't have any right to eat. You can't do both. They don't have a right to eat at the altar that, that you eat at. The high priest, he says, carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. That was the common practice. So you offer the blood, and then you carry these bodies of these poor creatures that have been slain outside the camp, and you burn them. And look at the comparison, verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus Christ, he didn't die in the temple. He didn't die in the Holy of Holies. He died on a garbage heap outside Jerusalem called Golgotha. He died on a cross outside of the camp. Catch this. Let us then go to him outside the camp and, bore, and bear, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Now these are people who are 
who are putting their faith in Jesus. They were disgraced among the Jews. They were disgraced. No longer did they come to the temple, but they came to the, to the, to the garbage heap outside Jerusalem. For here we do not have an enduring city, meaning Jerusalem. It's not our city anymore, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, in context, through Jesus, the perfect high priest, the full payment for our sins, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that confess his name. What is there left to do? What sacrifice can you make? But a sacrifice of praise to God. What can you say to this God who did all of this for you? You can throw your head back and you can praise him. You, as an intentional act of your will, you can get over yourself, you can get over your boredom, you can get over your inhibitions, you can get over the things that keep you from praising God, and you can praise Him for who He is. And it doesn't matter if you're having a good day or a bad day, He's still God. And He's always worthy to be praised. There's one more sacrifice you can make if you read the next verse. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. But with such sacrifices, God is pleased. There are two sacrifices. There are two things to do, Christian. Praise God and love each other. What a God. What a God. What a faith. That these are our two, the two demands of a loving God. I want you to praise me. And I want you to love each other. Jesus was once asked, as part of a trick, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? He said, actually, there are two. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Praise God. And the others like it. He said, do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as you love yourself. What a God. What a God. These are his two big demands on us. To praise him and to sacrificially love each other. What a God. What a faith. You ready? So, Father, we come into your presence. You called us to come into your presence by the blood of Jesus. You called us in. You called us in by the blood of Jesus. That we don't need anybody anymore to stand between us and you. That your son Jesus Christ made this perfect provision, and it's his name we come, Lord, because we're sinners. We don't want to commit another sin, Lord. It is not in our heart to sin. We're not looking for excuses. We're looking for forgiveness. And we're looking for the power to walk a righteous life. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and move among us as we worship you, as we throw our heads back and give you praise, as we reach down into the parts of us that make decisions and we say, praise you, God. I choose to praise you because you are exalted over all that is. Father, come, I pray. I pray with your infectious Holy Spirit, you will come and you will cause us to give you the praise and glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. On your feet, church.